Hey friends, welcome to Simply Faithful, your place for Christian conversations without the hype. My name is Eric Tunges. I am the pastor of Grace Central Church in Omaha, Nebraska. And my name is Gray Ewing, and I am the pastor of Ascension Church of Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Here on Simply Faithful, we like to have conversations about life and following Jesus uh, in a way that you can just join in with us, with your friends, and that helps you to grow closer to him. Yeah, if you're at home, relaxing on the couch, close your eyes and enjoy. Uh, if you're if you're driving, don't do that, but uh, we're just super glad that you're here. Or at least don't hold us liable if you do. <laughs> so, Eric, I want to have somewhat of a strange conversation with you today, and if it's all right, what I'm going to do is just talk for just a minute, and then I want you to just clean up my mess and, and tell the dear listeners here what really this tension is, because I call this episode, uh, What Do I Contribute to My Salvation? And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be yelling at their screens right now and saying, you contribute nothing. And it's not really the best way to talk about it. I don't know what the best way is to talk about it. So the tension that I want to explore uh, with you today is this view of who does what in both salvation and in spiritual growth, because I feel like we live in a tension. If you are attending a church that has a high view of God and a high view of the scriptures, you're likely to hear a sermon, maybe even a sermon by Eric or myself, where we emphasize that God does everything. Maybe we're preaching on Jesus saying, apart from me, uh, you can do nothing. I'm the vine and you are the branches. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Basically, God is the author of spiritual life. He is the source and he is in control. And so I think there can be a bit of a whiplash. Like if you're in one of those churches and you hear that, or maybe a pastor if you're listening to this, you struggle with, but what about the the application side? What about, okay, but you still need to do some things. You need to believe some things. You need to practice some things. You are called to pray more and to do things. What is that? Is that cooperating with God? Is that contributing your end? Or how do we understand that? So that's a bit of word salad. Eric, how would you describe the tension that you think that I'm getting at right now? Sure. I mean, at root, what you're asking about is this question of, I think, God's activity and our activity and how they relate to each other. I do think that part of what's maybe a little messy about the way that you are wanting us to dive into it is that the word salvation is a word that can mean different things to different people. And so when we say you don't contribute anything to your salvation, what we technically mean is that we're talking about merit or about deserving or about the agent that causes you to enter into reconciled relationship with God. And in that sense, absolutely, we would just say it is a work of God's free grace, not based on anything in us. We're saved by that. But there's another sense of salvation, which is just a way of describing the whole work of transforming rescue from the dominion of darkness and being brought into the kingdom of light. There's all sorts of things that we do, both initially in terms of repentance and faith and in an ongoing way in terms of struggle with sin and spiritual disciplines and practices and habits and all of that. And I think that in that broader sense, we can wrestle with that tension because there's ways that we want to stress God's agency and power, and there's other ways where we want to stress our agency and engagement. And that, I think, is a very common tension that people feel and that it's very easy, I think, for people to fall off on one side or the other of. 
Yeah, I think agency is probably the one of the greatest words you could use there. And if you're curious about uh, more about what Eric said about salvation, we did just do a recent episode on can I lose my salvation? And we do dive, I believe, if memory serves, into some more of that, like, what do we mean by salvation there? So what I'm talking about today is it's more of this idea of, of agency. I like that word, like, who does what? Is it proper for us to talk about us doing anything? I've known pastors, Eric, who believe so much in the sovereignty and the power of God that they feel like they they can't ever tell their people that they need to pray more or that they need to have some kind of spiritual life with God because they so emphasize the fact that God does everything that to even suggest that is to go down a road towards uh, undoing the gospel. Well, and for most Christians, I think there's places where you feel the tension. One example that comes to mind is just in struggling with a particular sin where on the one hand, there are people who sort of have this mentality that God just needs to fix this, God just needs to deliver me from this, so they pray, God, like, take these desires from me, keep me from sinning, and then they just go out and do what they want to do and sin. But on the other hand, there are people who are trying to white-knuckle their way through obedience and change and force themselves to overcome that sin, and while they might pray, they struggle to know, well, what am I actually praying for? And what is that actually doing? Because their instinct is so centered on their choosing and their acting. And so I think that tension for both of those people is relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also people just, they want to know, what should I be focusing on? And so there's a practical question of just, what would God have me do? And what does scripture say about that? So let's put up a few goalposts, just a few markers, Eric, scripturally speaking, for this discussion that I think we can weave amongst and and maybe find uh, what it is that the scripture teaches. Because this tension is throughout the scriptures, and it's one that the biblical writers actually often play with, and even in the way that they speak. The first kind of marker that I would put out there is that it is absolutely true that scripture talks about God being the first actor in history, in the world, the one who created everything, created people with then who had responses to him, but it's, it is God who acts first. And so in first John, for instance, it says that we love because he first loved us. There's no way that you can understand that passage without emphasizing that without God's action, we don't have anything to contribute, right? Uh, I mentioned uh, Jesus saying, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If we have a theology that emphasizes that we need to start growing and we need to start doing things without first recognizing that without him, we're unable to do so, then we are really speaking uh, outside of scripture. Sure. Although just to clarify, while I think some of that's going to be pertinent to what we talk about, I don't know that that fully resolves the tension that you feel or even highlights the tension that you feel. Because I think most... No, we're just, we're early in the episode. Uh, we're not going to fully resolve. That's fair. I'm putting a goalpost up. I think most people <laughs> are fine with the idea that God does some stuff first. But the struggle then comes in, but how are my responses and God's actions kind of caught up with each other? I think most people are fine with the idea, for example, of like, oh, yeah, we're saved by grace. But then when it comes to responding to God's grace, when it comes to obedience, that's where the tension is. To that end, another thing that scripture talks about at times is not just that you have a sort of like call and response rhythm to things, but also that there seems to be a real synergy or cooperation or co-involvement in the things that we do. So, for example, in Colossians 1, 29, Paul talks about his ministry and his life, and he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
And I think that does a great job of highlighting the way the Bible really holds those two things close together. It's not just that like God loves us and then we love other people in a way that's separate. But Paul's saying, I toil, I struggle, I work hard, and I'm working at the same time with this energy that God is working in me as I do it powerfully. And so so scripture brings them in a deep interwoven, interconnected way, as well as just recognizing that kind of call and response rhythm. Yeah. Another scripture passage that really speaks to that is Philippians chapter two, which says that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so, yeah, I'm just building that tension. Eric, you just stole all the fire, but that's that's okay. I'm used to it by now. Uh, no, I'm obviously <laughs> that where I was heading with that is that scripture does in fact do that. So it combines these two things very closely in a way that is that's not going to remove the mystery. I think we're going to talk more about the mystery of this, but it does say both side by side. It isn't they aren't separate processes. Paul is talking about working hard and at the same time talking about God who who works in him. And so that we have to have both of those things together. No matter what we do, we're, we're not going to we're not going to separate them very hard. One other biblical signpost that we definitely need to put in the ground in this discussion as well is that the Bible does consistently hold us responsible for our choices. It sees us as having a real responsibility in our agency, whether that's the way that it views unbelief, whether that's the way that it views sin. You mentioned that episode a few weeks ago that I feel like in some ways was an inspiration to this about can I lose my salvation, but even things like apostasy and turning away from God as he moves towards us, whatever those things are, there is a real sense of moral responsibility that human creatures have for their actions. They're making real choices and they're responsible for those choices. Not even a sense of, just absolute moral responsibility, right? We have that responsibility. And uh, (laughs) it's interesting, Eric, I never do this. I absolutely never, ever, ever do this like once or twice a year. Uh, I commented recently on a YouTube post that somebody had put up that was bashing certain traditions that we find ourselves in. I, I never interact with the uh, with the trolls uh, online, but I did against my better judgment about two weeks ago. This guy posted something about how uh, our tradition th- that he was bashing is, is all about how uh, we don't do anything. You're not responsible because we believe in things like God's election that he before the foundation of the world, he elects us and himself. We're not going to go into all those things. But if you believe in this, then it means that you don't believe the scripture when it says that we have responsibility. And I'm just like all over this guy. And of course, we went back and forth like four times. Uh, he repented. He he cried. He he came back to, to the faith. He deleted the video. And that's always what happens when you comment on internet posts, right? That's right. No, none of that happened. Yeah, he stopped interacting with me because it was going nowhere. And that was that was a good thing for both of us. But I do believe that this is out there. People thinking because of God's sovereignty, his power, his control over the world, there's a logical kind of person who says, well, that means then there is no responsibility or there can be no responsibility logically. Therefore, you know, anything that the scripture tells us to do, we should basically just assume that we can't do it and that the whole point of that is you can't do it, so don't even try. One of the biblical problems with that way of thinking, and I might get philosophical here in a minute or two because I think we're going to have to a little bit to dig into some of this, but one of the biblical problems with that is just that that tends to be a sort of reasoning that tries to philosophize away tensions that we see in the Bible. And so when we're in scripture, like those passages that we just noted, it's willing to say very strong things both about God's action and activity in a given situation and about the fact that we're responsible and need to work and act. It doesn't feel that 
that tension. And so whatever the answer is, just generally, you want to be really wary of taking one theme of scripture and concluding from that that another theme of scripture is wrong. <laughs> right. Or that it doesn't work and that you have to kind of ignore all of the passages that teach it. Not just about this issue, but I think there are a lot of issues where people want a sort of simplistic, rational consistency that fits with their perceptions of the world in a way that make them explain away one part of the Bible because they think they're being faithful to another part. Yeah, that's right. I don't think that we can talk about this anymore, Eric, without diving into the deep end of what is free will and what is determinism? What is the relationship between God's agency and human responsibility, which is kind of the headier discussion that, you know, is behind all of this. And I do think we should go there, but I also think we should restrain ourselves somewhat. <laughs> so You're looking at me because I assume you expect me to go here because I did a bunch of undergrad philosophy stuff and am interested in that. I think maybe a little more than you. And I want to keep this simple too. So let me just start with this. I'll try to walk through a couple of steps and I'll let you kind of speak into each of them. But let's talk philosophically. I don't know if you noticed this about the way we were talking up to now, but I at least really strenuously avoid ever using the term free will. And the reason that I avoid that is not because there's not a sort of free will that people have, but because that term philosophically is actually very hotly debated about what that means. And there's a whole range of options for what that means and doesn't mean. But let me just try to put forward, in my mind, like the two buckets that probably best fit with the ways that people wrestle with it. And that's what I'm going to call libertarianism, not the political philosophy, but libertarian free will, and what I'm going to call compatibilism. And basically what they both reflect is that when you say that you're free, you have to say, in respect to what are you free? So for example, no one thinks that free will means that we can will anything. I can't like will a Big Mac to appear in front of me and it suddenly materializes out of thin air. So we all recognize that there's limits, that we're free in a certain sense. So libertarianism says that we are free from any constraint on our will, including things like our desires and histories and any sort of outside influence. It would say that for a choice to be truly free, and it wants to say that humans at least sometimes make these kinds of choices, that I am making it on a truly kind of open playing field and I'm free from anything that would shape or limit the choices that I'm going to make. And I think instinctively that's where a lot of people go. Philosophically, that view is the one that is probably the most problematic. Compatibilism, which is another kind of view of free will, says instead that I am free to do what I desire in any given situation. But of course, those desires are going to be limited by my history and what I'm desiring and the influence of other people, including potentially God. And so I'm still free because no one's coming down and I'm not a puppet, right? I'm not choosing to do something and then suddenly like my body is doing something else like a marionette. Um, I'm really making real decisions and I'm a real agent in those decisions, but that there are other things that are caught up in that, not just God, also like who I am and what I did this morning and uh, my body and the relationships I have with other human beings, but that all of those things are at work, but I'm still making real choices. Uh, I'm not uh, a robot or something like that. That's right. And, you know, compatibilism also, it really recognizes that there is a givenness to the world so that the fact that we are human beings and the fact that we walk uprightly on two legs and there's things about the world that limit and constrain choice and desire. And so 
it's very easy then from a compatibilist perspective to see, even though it's not necessary to be to be religious or to believe in God to be a compatibilist, you can see how it would go back to the source, right? That we have a creator who has given us certain desires and put us in certain environments and desires certain things for us that then, you know, gives us this this world to live in. And it, it makes it it makes a lot of sense with our faith. Then let me add this to that, because I think when people are getting a little philo- philosophical and thinking about this, part of what they wrestle with is then moral responsibility and how can I be held responsible for our actions. And interestingly, neither libertarianism nor compatibilism has a fully satisfactory answer for that within philosophy. They both have problems. The problem for libertarianism is that while we might say, oh, I'm most responsible when I am most free from any sort of outside or inside influence and I'm really just choosing, the more you skew in that direction, the more it feels like randomness. And in fact, one of the ways that people will often morally justify themselves is when they do something that they're like, I don't know why I did that. Like, where did that come from? As if that they have a sense that actually when we're the most indeterminate in our choices, when it's the most sort of just out of left field with nothing influencing it, that that's actually a situation where we're less morally responsible because we're being less ourselves. And so it's hard to hold the self-responsible. And at the same time, compatibilism does have a struggle with moral uh, responsibility because you then have to ask, but at what point does influence become something that we recognize as removing moral culpability? So for example, if somebody holds a gun to my head and forces me to do something, we have a sense that I'm less morally culpable in that situation because they're making me do it. Of course, I could choose to let them shoot me, but there's a level of influence there where we would say, yeah, like that removes at least some amount of your responsibility for your choices. That's different from if you're just making it without some threat on your life. And so Compatibilists then have to wrestle with how and to what extent do these different influences within and outside of us fit with moral responsibility. But that's just a hard thing philosophically for everybody to work through. Right. But I would also say, though, that, I mean, even in the word itself, compatibilism, it's trying to hold those things in tension, right? It's trying to hold two things. Yes. So you're really more talking about the the abuse of it, you know, in that situation than the use of it. But I think I agree with you in the in the sense that, I mean, I think D.A. Carson talks about this at times, who, who identifies as a compatibilist and is a very smart man. It's just kind of like, you have to be a compatibilist, but it's not like that really satisfies everything, right? I mean, what, what you're basically saying is at the end of the day, you hold two things in tension and therefore hold them in tension. And that's the best that we can do. We do recognize, have to recognize that we hit the end of reason at some point with this. And so then it kind of comes into the spiritual realm, which I think is kind of the place that we, we should probably talk about next, which is, go ahead, what you're going to say. Well, I was just going to say, well, one, I do have some thoughts, but I'm not going to share them here because they're getting kind of philosophical and are pretty debatable about a little further down the road than that. But anyway, turning it to the spiritual realm in particular, there's another layer there that I think is important to stress. And that's that the theologian Michael Allen, I remember, pointed this out to me, and it really struck me as insightful, which is that for a lot of history people didn't seem to struggle with these questions as much as we have in the last few centuries. And he says that part of the reason for that is that one of the things that happened in modernity is that we view God and creation competitively. And so we view the things that God does as the things that creation doesn't do, and the things that happen naturally within creation as things that aren't things that God does. And so we have them separate. There, he, he, he pictures it as like you've got two actors that are kind of equal competing with each other, whereas historically most people had a sense that just God and creation are different orders of being. And so God works and acts and creation happens and there's causes and choices and all of that. And those two things are interrelated. God is in a sense working in all of creation. 
but not in a way that removes creation's own agency and power. And that's true naturally. So God causes the plants to grow and also water evaporates and gathers in the atmosphere and rains down on them. And that's true in terms of things like human actions, that God works and moves in the world and shapes hearts and does all the other things that the Bible talks about him doing in his sovereignty. And we choose and make real choices and influence the world and have an enormous effect on the creation around us as God's image bearers. That's right. And even in such beautiful documents as the Westminster Confession of Faith and those types of places, they wrestle with some of these questions. And uh, that one in particular says that God is the actor of every first cause, right? So a first cause thing is God's doing something in the world, but not in such a way as violates a secondary cause. And so basically what Eric is saying, God does make the plants to grow, but not in a way that violates the secondary cause of the water table also contributing to the plants growing. I think people may still be confused, though. Uh, I'm still a little bit behind as well. So when, when you say that there was two separate realms, how does that or you know, going back to Michael Allen's thing, how does that help, you know, specifically in in this kind of divide? What's the thing that helps clarify that for you? What I think is significant about that is that it just reminds us that when we're having discussions about God willing and working in the world, we're not talking about an agent that's equal to our agency. And that like, if God is affecting the choices I make or helping me grow spiritually or whatever, that therefore I'm not involved. That it's in fact my very action and agency that embodies and works out that agency of God. They're compatible, I guess, in that sense, as well as in the kind of moral responsibility sense and um, and are able to move together because they're different orders of being. God is above the line is something that we used to hear said a lot in seminary, and we're below the line. And because of that, there can be a lot more overlap than I think people naturally expect. He's referencing the question of, that we would often get asked, which part of us is above the line? If you think of a, of a line existing in the middle of a page and then God is above it and mankind is beneath it, which part of us you know, exists above the line? The answer is no part of us. you know. And so we are a wholly different being than God. So, so I, I do think, let's... Let me try to give an analogy. This is going to get me in trouble almost certainly because this... Every analogy is imperfect, and this is very imperfect. But this is... Is this like a a trinity, like an egg kind of analogy? or No. (laughs) This is the analogy that I have in my mind, which is... So I've known some people who write fiction. I think you recommended writing fiction on a recent podcast in What's Good, Gray. But they talk about the characters in their novels almost as if they're independent beings in one sense. So there are times that I've known people who write stories and are almost, they're surprised by what characters do. As the story progresses, they are caught up in this way of like, oh, like this has to happen, obviously, because these are the characters in this situation. And so this is how they're going to act. Not that God is surprised by what we do, but there is a sense in which those characters feel almost alive to the author. But at the same time, of course, the author is ultimately the one writing the story and is ultimately in control of all things. And that's an imperfect analogy, both because God is greater than any human author and because we are greater than characters in a novel. But I And we are r- real. <laughs> yes. But I feel like there <laughs> is a sort of interplay like that that we can recognize. That's At least for me, that's the closest thing to a, an analogy or image that I have in my head to help me kind of navigate this. Again, I could poke lots of theological holes in that. But if that's helpful to anybody, I think that I at least find some amount of sense in that. That's right. And so no part of this discussion should ever, you know, when we talk about free will, uh, Eric... <laughs> doesn't like the phrase free will ever. And I, I agree. Actually, the reason I don't like it is because it makes me think of Free Willy, which is that uh, early 1990s movie, uh, which does wrestle with some of these questions of, of freedom and constraint. 
Checkmate philosophers. <laughs> That's right. That's uh, a little on the nose. Uh, free will e uh, the the whale is named Willie. If you don't know the story, but anyway, that phrase problematic as it is, a lot of people cling to. Right, a lot of people are like, well, you know, I have free will, and a lot of people that are even teachers, and what they really mean is. I chose to have Trix cereal for breakfast rather than I chose to have Count Chocula, you know, for breakfast. And that choice is meaningful because I'm a Trix guy and not a Count Chocula guy. And if that's true on that level, then it has to be true on pretty much every level that I'm taking responsibility for myself. And so just practically, let's get out of the realm of the of the philosophy for a second, even though we can't leave it behind fully. Like what is going on there, Eric, when somebody makes a choice towards something and they know that it's their choice and it has to do with preference? And how does that relate to what their choices might be as it relates to God? Yeah, so some of the answer to that is mysterious. And this is why I use the term agency. I think I would... Count Chocula. I'd probably be a Count Chocula person. First to just note, the complexity philosophically, because I'm going to go back there, I guess, is that you probably made that choice because there's some combination of like, you're in your childhood, you ate a certain kind of cereal, or this was cheaper at the grocery store, or your taste buds in biology incline you to want that kind of thing. There's still things at work beyond your immediate control and that shape your desires and cause you to choose the things that you choose. But that does not eliminate the fact that you in that moment are really making a choice and acting out those desires. But I think the bigger issue, and in some ways I don't love things like this, what did I have for breakfast analogy, because they miss it, is that the real question is, do you have absolute sovereignty over yourself or is God ultimately sovereign over all things, including yourself? And when you phrase it that way, I think people recognize some of the biblical tension more so. Now, God being ultimately sovereign over yourself, meaning being ultimately in control of the universe, including human beings, doesn't mean that there's some exacting, detailed working out of everything. That doesn't mean that, you know, he forces you. All the stuff we said before, that is true. But there are certain Christian philosophers that have tried to argue, essentially, that God gives up his sovereignty in order for us to have the sort of free will that I think people are really imagining. And that runs into two problems. One is that biblically, it doesn't seem like God gave up that kind of sovereignty in creation. Regularly, God is talked about as being involved with all sorts of human events and the boundaries of nations and choices. And, you know, the king makes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps. There's all kinds of places in scripture where God is really seen still as involved in that. And it's very hard then if you have God truly giving up his sovereignty in that sense to explain how we can have any confidence in him because because to really give up that sort of level of control of the universe i mean if you need that for people to have meaningful free will then that means that you need it to be possible for god to lose in terms of the great spiritual conflict of the universe in order for people to have free will i think and that gets really worrying let me clarify that a little bit for people too it's just that you cannot have a god who controls the ends of things without controlling the the means of things right. if you believe that god will win and that salvation will be accomplished and applied to god's people if you believe that you have can have a certainty of salvation that if you that god will be victorious over the forces of evil all these things you have to believe also that he is able to do the means every step of the way that would accomplish that victory which is all of history and all of life and so you can't escape the tension by saying god just gave us free will as if there was a divine cutting off of sovereignty when it comes to us otherwise 
it would be theoretically possible for us to overthrow him or to or for the evil one to overthrow him or something like that. Right. Now, biblically, we can say that we have a sort of agency that means we're responsible in a way that like a tree falling on a person doesn't make the tree responsible. And we have the sort of agency to rebel against God, right? Adam and Eve could choose to sin. We're in rebellion against God. And so humans and angels seem to be the only creatures in the biblical story that have that kind of agency. But that doesn't mean that it's a level of agency that becomes a freedom from any sort of involvement or rule of God, that God is still involved in those ways. We're running in circles a little bit though, Grace. So let's, okay, we've said all of this stuff. Let's shift gears and talk practically then. Okay, so all this philosophical stuff we've been wrestling with for people. What are some of the things we'd want to say to people in their lives who are actually struggling and trying to follow Jesus? Let's maybe separate it just for a couple of different profiles of people, and then we'll, we'll close it out with what's good. But I'm thinking first, uh, Eric, of the, the person who's struggling to overcome sin. When you think about that person, what is it that God has for you to hear if you are wondering, what is my agency in this? First thing that comes to my mind is this. You must pray for God's enabling power. Your prayers should not just be about victory for your own personal temptations. They should be about the Spirit of God changing your desires and changing you as a person so that you are the type of person who can overcome the sin and recognizing that that power doesn't come from you, it comes from God. So God is at work both to will and to do you know, everything, as, as Paul says. So pray for that. Pray, pray specifically that God would change your desires and that give you victory. When the victory happens, it will be both a recognition that you have worked hard and also that God has worked powerfully, enablingly within you. That's right. I also think if you're in that place, one of the real hopeful things about everything that we've been talking about, about God's involvement in the world, is that that struggle is not left to you, even though you're called to struggle and engage with it. That you can have a sense that you recognize that because God is at work in the world, alongside and through and with you as you are choosing and struggling and fighting, that there is a level of strength and a level of hopefulness you can have in your struggle with sin that you actually don't have if it's all on your shoulders to kind of muscle your way through it. It's sort of like, I, I haven't the last few months because of moving and stuff, but I historically lift weights some. And for years, I just could not do pull-ups and refused to do pull-ups because I was really bad at them until I got those bands, the like rubber exercise band things. And I attached them to my pull-up bar so that, you know, you hook your feet through them and, and you're doing pull-ups still, but they're they're lifting you at the same time. That again, man, every analogy I'm making, I'm like, I could philosophically <laughs> critique this a lot. But the point I'm trying to make is that you can have a real hopefulness of saying like, man, because God's power and God's strength is in play in my struggle with sin and not just mine, I can do things like do pull-ups that I could not do if I was just left to my own devices. Which is not to say that God is there just to enable Eric's strength. I, I appreciate the attempts, you know, because really it is helpful, but it's also just wrong. <laughs> I know. <laughs> You can jump in the comments of these episodes and tear me apart. Eric, in a word, helpful, but wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Okay. <laughs> Let's think about the person, Eric, who is feeling like their life is out of control. Maybe they've made some choices that have made their life spiral. Maybe maybe they feel like uh, it's not so much their choices. Maybe they were maybe they were hurt in some way by someone, or their home was destroyed by a hurricane. Or to the person who's at a loss for what's happening in their life, what is what we're talking about today? How does that speak to them? 
Yeah, that's a big question. But the place I think I would start with these specific questions we're wrestling with today is just to say that the thing about God's involvement in the world and the fact that he's ultimately, you know, sovereign, even as people are choosing, is that that means that all of our suffering, whether it is stuff that we've brought on ourselves by our bad decisions, whether it's stuff that other people have inflicted on us, all of our suffering, it is not good, right? It doesn't make it into good. It's still evil and God opposes it. And it's not not painful, but that it can, in a sense, be ultimately meaningful, meaning that it's caught up in a story of redemption, where even though that part of it is bad in the same way that if you're reading a story, there's bad and dark and horrible things that happen, you can believe and move forward with this understanding that because God is sovereign and at work in the world, even through those dark places, even as we make bad choices, he's still working good purposes. Again, that doesn't remove the pain and it doesn't remove the badness. I think sometimes Christians make it sound like, oh, you shouldn't care, you shouldn't weep. No, don't hear that at all. But that it is ultimately meaningful and not wasted and not just random, which is really what you're left with without God's involvement. That It's just like, well, stuff happens, too bad. And I also think that we have to be careful of a hard separation and trying to understand and try to be above the line with some of these things. But it is and may be helpful in your situation to separate a little bit of what you can see happening in your life and you know what some of the sources may be. Just recognizing that you are going through suffering or that, that you have been given a hardship is a kind of a powerful thing, right? Like this was, I lost this child or I, or my spouse lost their job at work. And it was, it was just because the company was going through hard things. It wasn't because they had poor work performance or something like that. There are losses to recognize. And then there's also a lot of value in saying, what have I contributed, right? Like what have I done? And some circumstances you will say nothing. The Lord has just brought me into a season of hardship. And sometimes you may say, there's something here for me to, to go further in repentance on or to work towards. But I think sometimes separating some of those strands, as much as you are able to from a human perspective, which is limited, then that actually helps you kind of understand the world a little bit more and, and grow. Yeah, I actually think it's really important to stress in that, that the agency part is real too. We've kind of danced around this a little bit, but there is an appropriate sort of rejoicing. Paul talks about it as boasting almost that acknowledges that God is at work in us and gives him ultimate glory so that we're not ultimately honoring ourselves. But that does feel a real sense of affirmation and assuredness in the fact that like I have joined with him and done this thing. I have faced this adversity and clung to Jesus and overcome it. And he, yes, he's ultimately worked all of that in me, but I can rejoice in what he's worked in me as well. And that can actually help me. There is a sort of honoring of agency and of the people in those struggles that I think is biblical and that we sometimes shy away from too much. There are people who came through, for example, terrible abuse or terrible struggle. And I do kind of want to say to them, like, there's a real honor that I feel for you when I see the way that you faithfully walked through that. And I give glory to God at the same time. And there's an honor that you should kind of feel that in that even as you give ultimate glory to God in it. I have one more category of people for you, Gray. Okay. What about the person who's just lazy and doesn't want to do anything <laughs> spiritually? <laughs> Choose ye today who you will serve. No, the scripture commands the person who is is lazy and doesn't want to do anything that this is God's call for your life to uh, rise up and to take the reins of your life and to get off the couch and to do things. And that is nothing in those statements is against God's sovereignty. We can fully charge ourselves with the commands of scripture without repercussion of that. Absolutely. 
Okay, what's well, the end of there today, Eric? And uh, what a weird discussion. I, I loved it in a sense. And also, just let us know what, what you thought about it. Comment somewhere. Tell us if you enjoy hearing words like compatibilism in the podcast or if you are tempted to turn it off when uh, when that happens. And unlike <laughs> Gray, we won't fight with you too much in our comment thread. <laughs> That's right. No trolling here. Eric, we end every show with what's good. And this is a time when we can delight in the world that God has given us and that he has sovereignly taken charge of. And yet he has given us in his great compatibilist world, the ability to engage in certain things or not engage in them if we don't want to, because we have free will. No. Uh, so, Eric, with your free will, what have you chosen to uh, to enjoy recently? So I've got a kind of weird what's good in some ways. So I want to recommend, depending on how you categorize it, either a leadership and or a self-help book, or maybe two of them. But it's a weird book. And so here's the deal. There's there's this book. The, the book I'm going to recommend that people should just pick up and read is Leadership and Self-Deception, subtitled Getting Out of the Box, written by the Arbinger Institute, not a person, but, but an organization. I encountered this book years ago, read it, thought it was kind of helpful, didn't kind of just forgot it. Then picked it up, reread it. I mean, I remember it being helpful, but I was just like, man, there is a lot here. Like, there's a part of me that, that would say this book, I want every elder to read, <laughs> you know, in, in a church. But so basically, leadership and self-deception theoretically is a book about leadership, but really is a book about the ways that we can move through the world in ways that are ultimately self-deluded because of the fact that we're viewing the world through the lens of ourselves and our stories rather than kind of taking the world in its own, own terms and seeing people as they are. And all of that sounds like really obvious and stuff, but there's something about the way that it engages it that I just found very helpful to my heart. Again, I mean, these are things I sort of know, but re-highlighting to me the importance of this and some of the dangers and pitfalls of this. And if people want to dig into it more, uh, there's a another book, called Bonds That Make Us Free, which is by C. Terry Warner, who is one of the people who wrote Leadership and Self-Deception. And it kind of goes into more detail, kind of working through the ideas. The other weird thing about Leadership and Self-Deception is it's a story about a new guy at a company, like it's written narratively. It's just a strange book. But man, if people could just internalize and learn the sort of like sense of self-agency and ownership of your choices and of responsibility and of how much your sin is often that they don't use the word sin, but how much often that's the thing causing issues in your relationship, but you just can't see it. I really just think that it's a valuable resource. Have you read the book ever? Do you know this at all? I don't know it at all, and uh, but it sounds intriguing, and the title title alone is is convicting, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you if you lead for any any length of time, you know that that it is true that you have narratives about your church, about the world, about whatever it is that you're leading that you know will will limit you, and also you know there's just different ways of seeing things. Some of some of the most amazing meet, meetings that I've had with people or breakthrough moments organizationally for me have just been from somebody saying, "Why are you looking at it that way?" You know, like that's just like a really bad way to look at it, <laughs> and it's a reframing, right? I don't know if that's if that's getting at what the book is doing, but. Uh, 
in some ways, those people were probably getting you out of the box, which people who have read the book definitely will chuckle that it uses that language too much. It's a way of just saying like one of the weird things about leadership is that ultimately a leader is the person with authority over an organization. But oftentimes when organizations are struggling, there's this weird way that leaders blame everything except themselves for <laughs> the things that are going wrong. And it's because they can't even see the ways that they're a part of the dysfunctions in their organizations and systems. And so as a tool to help you reflect on that, I just found it really helpful. So that's my what's good leadership and self-deception, getting out of the box. That should do it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this discussion, please share it with a friend and also share it on social media. Help us get out the word. Of course, we are doing this in part to spread this around, but we also are doing it for our own churches. We're both just local pastors. And uh, so we're really glad to have you today. Absolutely. And also, if you get a chance and want to give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you listen to us on, that's also a good way for people to find us. And keep the conversation going with friends and others. With that said, my name is Eric. And I'm Gray. And this has been Simply Faithful. Before the foundation of the world, he elects us in himself. We're not going to go into all those things. But anyway, this person was very dismissively saying, well, if you... By name or password has changed. To update your Wi-Fi... Hold on one second. Alexa, play Never Gonna Give You Up. <laughs> it's worth a try. I was going to see if I could rickroll you there. I already cut all of this out, obviously. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, sometimes the AI, yeah, they come back and they're, they're going to take over.